0: Amen. Well, welcome. Good morning. It's good to see you. Um, Welcome to Water's Edge. For the past year, there's been uh, two major processes that we've been working on with Missions at Central. The first one being uh, keep missions giving strong to our committed partnerships. And because of your faithful generosity, that has happened over this past year. So thank you. Um, I can't say that enough. That's, that's how we are empowering people to be on mission in the world. The second thing that we've been working on is developing a missional strategy. One that will inform us what we believe about mission and how we will be doing mission moving forward. We sense that God is calling us to the same strategy home and away because you've heard it before. All missions is Local missions, I guess we don't say it enough. (laughs) All missions is local missions. And um, so God's wanting us to develop this this strategy and so we're going to be uh, going through some movements this morning. Uh, The first movement is to um, kind of frame the problem. Um, Why are there lost and impoverished people in the world? It's important for us to understand the cause and the nature and what God's missional thrust is in repairing the world and our part in it. Uh, The second is um, we're going to be defining and explaining what we're calling five global giants that God is calling us to slay home and away. And as we start to walk through some of these giants, you'll begin to realize why complex problems require comprehensive solutions. The third movement will be Pastor Craig talking about the comprehensive nature of the cross and the work that Christ did on our behalf. And then the fourth movement can be a little bit scary because we're going to be challenged to come face to face with those giants in our own lives. Uh, We believe that the transformation we want to see in the world begins with us. And so it will take introspection and confession and prayer and courage to be used of God to slay these giants home and away. Does that sound good? Well, it doesn't matter. That's what we're doing. (laughs) Now, in order to uh, understand the problem fully, you know why there are lost and impoverished people in the world today. We have to understand what went wrong in the beginning. And last October, uh, Pastor Brad did an incredible job walking us through the story of God. Those of you who were here, wasn't that amazing? Yeah, I uh, I actually had the uh, the help of my own personal decoder ring to get through it. Um, But you're much smarter than me and probably didn't need one. But it was beautiful, brilliantly communicated. And at the beginning of that, he referenced four relationships. I call this God's ecosystem, relationships that God created to sustain shalom. And when those relationships are working together, they look like this us and God, us and self. Us and each other, us in creation. This is what it looks like when those relationships are working together in harmony and unity. This is what it's supposed to look like. Now take a look at what happened when sin entered the world. Many people believe that sin just affected our bodies and our souls with death and potentially living apart from God for eternity. But as you can see, it was far more devastating than that. Sin affected, sin broke every relationship that God had created to sustain shalom. We are no longer interdependent. And then you can see the ramifications of what happened as sin broke those relationships. Other gods, religions, calamity, famine, War, violence, poverty, I mean you name it, if it's not of God, it entered the world because of these broken relationships. And so I wanna illustrate with this is to say that when we think about lost and impoverished people, we need to understand that the cause is fundamentally spiritual, it's sin. But we also need to understand that the nature is fundamentally relational. Relationships that are no longer working the way that God had intended. And so when we approach missions, we wanna approach missions in repairing these relationships. And so what is the solution for humanity in this picture? I mean, obviously our relationships were completely uh, affected by sin. And I think the solution is, is two things. If we go back to the origin of God creating us as image bearers, that's our identity. And our vocation in being co-creators and co-laborers with God. Because of sin, we've lost that. And I think in order to recover that, um, one of the most important doctrines in the church illustrates it beautifully, it's the doctrine of the Trinity. You may be thinking, what does the Trinity have to do with missions? To have a sound missiology, it has everything to do with missions. I love all the different ways we've attempted to explain the Trinity, uh, so that our finite mind we can wrap our finite minds around it. And some of those illustrations, I I already see them coming to your head right now. The Trinity is like water: solid, liquid, gas. (laughs) The Trinity's like an egg: a shell, a yolk, and a white. The Trinity is like a three-leaf clover. I think that's one of the weakest. But my favorite is when people try to talk about the Trinity by explaining how three-in-one shampoo works. (laughs) Which is confusing to me because I didn't even know three-in-one shampoo existed. I thought it was just two-in-one. So, these drastically fall short of describing the mystery and the beauty of the Trinity. And I think one of the best ways to begin to understand this mystery is to look at creation. In Genesis, God said, Let us make humanity in our image. And if you think about the physiological makeup of humanity, we are mind, body, spirit, all at the same time. Take that water that adequately reflects the relationship of a triune God in the world. That's what was broken. God wants us to recover our identity as image bearers, as reflections of a triune God in the world. And the other thing is that he created us to be a co-laborer, a co-worker with him. So if you think about it, God's creation originated in his mind was executed through Christ, through the body, and was perfected by the Spirit. What a beautiful picture of us joining in to that co-laboring, co-creating process with our maker. And so those two things were absolutely destroyed. And so when you look at lost and impoverished people, There's a common misconception that poverty is a lack of material things. And if we apply good developmental practices, we can lift people out of the cycle of poverty and we win. But when you think about mission, God's mission in the world, poverty alleviation, much like salvation alone for the lost is not the sole outcome of mission. Because all humanity cries out for their identity to be restored and their vocation to be restored. And so the houses that we build for widows, the wells that we dig in Bangladesh, obviously people need these things. Did Jesus film absolutely, but we need to understand that what creation is crying out for is to be an image bearer and a co-creator with God and establishing the kingdom of heaven on earth. But because of the complex problem of sin, the majority of the world is lost. And over a billion people are stuck in abject poverty today, threatened by oppression, disease, and exploitation in all of its forms. And I think in order for us to help people recover their true identity and their vocation, five global giants have to be slain. It's what's standing in the way of people recovering their identity and vocation. We're gonna take a few minutes to walk through these five giants. Pastor Craig is gonna handle the first three and then I'll come up with the last two.
1: Thank you, Micah. So Micah has spent a little bit of time unpacking for us the the reality of sin in the world in which we live, and sin expresses itself in multiple forms, and what we've done over the last year is sought to help people have a simple framework of understanding what it is that we seek to do when we do missions. Now, many of you are here, and you've heard us talk about the Water's Edge vision, which was uh, and, uh, revealed to you in May of last year, and in there, we believe that God gave us a vision. He took us to a passage, Joshua chapter 3, where Joshua and the people of God were on the, the banks of the River Jordan, and God came to them and said, consecrate yourselves, make yourself right with me, with one another, because tomorrow I'm going to do a great work among you. And, and so they spent their time preparing, just like Micah said we've done over the last year, And and we've sensed God telling us that we're on the verge of a new tomorrow and we need to do essentially two things. The first thing we need to do is to take a risk and jump. As part of the stronger challenge, jump into the river. And if that isn't fearful enough, we recognize that the land into which the people of God were being called was a land that was filled with giants that needed to be slayed. And we just recognize that as we go out of this place and do mission, all mission is local, whether it's here or whether it's across the world, there are giants that need to be slayed. And we believe that there are five expressions of sin that hold people lost, hold people in bondage, and prevent them from experiencing the the hope and the life that Jesus offers And so we want to unpack those for you very quickly, those five giants that we believe that God is calling us to to slay in order for His hope and life to be experienced. The first one is very simply self-serving leadership. We believe that people experience despair, despondency rather than hope and life because leadership in so many forms is self-serving rather than sacrificial. In the scriptures, we, we read this in James chapter 3 and verse 16 For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there is disorder and everything evil. This selfish nature, the selfish drive of humanity, is revealed to us quite early on in the scriptures. In fact, this selfishness in leadership is seen as early as Genesis chapter 11. It's the story of the Tower of Babel. And there we see a group of leaders gathering together, recognizing in a sense that they are image bearers. To be an image bearer is essentially to recognize that you have authority, but God's call was to use that authority in all vulnerability, in humility. The perfect expression of that of course is Jesus Christ himself. There has not been anybody who has ever entered this world that has perfectly balanced authority and vulnerability as did Jesus. In him the fullness of the Godhead existed in bodily form, all authority, and yet he was born in a little town of Bethlehem in a manger in all vulnerability. And so quite early on in the Scriptures, we recognize humanity getting to grips with its authority, but rather than expressing itself in vulnerability, they do this. Come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens, so that we may make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we'll be be scattered over the face of the whole earth. Self-serving leadership, making a name for yourself rather than making a name and glorifying the name of the one that created you. So much suffering exists in the world today because leaders serve themselves rather than the people that God sent them to. What's the antidote to this? What's the antidote to Babel? It's actually Pentecost. There on the day of Pentecost, you have 120 frightened people praying in a room, and the Spirit of God comes down. And as the Spirit of God comes down, they start uh, praying and declaring the goodness of God in languages that they can't speak, and the Spirit of God drives them out of the room. And they're driven out of the room, and they're declaring the goodness, the wonders of God in these foreign tongues, these foreign languages. And this just happens at the same time as people from all over the known world are actually celebrating the Passover. And then they declare, how is it that we hear these Hebrews, these uneducated people, declare Declaring the goodness and the wonder of God in our own language. Uh, what a contrast between the two stories. On the one hand, you have people who recognize their authority, and rather than exalt the name of God, they exalt their own name. And On the other hand, you have these frightened, vulnerable, humble people, and there the Spirit of God falls, and there the authority is seen, the power is seen, and all of a sudden God declares His plan that He is going to bring together the peoples of the world, He's going to unite divided peoples of the world through the ministry of the church. Giants need to be slain. And One of the giants that needs to be slain in this world is the idea that leaders exist to glorify their own name. We believe that leaders are called, image bearers are called to bear the name and the glory of God using the authority that he has given us, matching that with incredible vulnerability. If we do not do that, what we witness is idolatry, and idolatry always leads to injustice. Self-serving leadership. The second giant, the second expression of sin in the world is this whole idea of spiritual emptiness. Soon after The Babel story happened, the people of the world are scattered, and there we see relational conflict entering in another word, a religious word for this idea of spiritual emptiness and the task that we're called to is this idea of the ministry of reconciliation. Spiritual emptiness, relational conflict happens in the world because there is a relationship that has been distorted. And that relationship that has been distorted is actually the relationship between God and us. And the scriptures teach us that when we get ourselves right with God, we put ourselves in a position to get ourselves right with other people. The ministry of the cross does that. The controlling power of sin that turns brother against brother, sister against sister, mother against father, is actually destroyed through the work of the cross. This is Paul's point in Ephesians chapter 2. I love this passage. Ephesians chapter 2, 14 through 20, Paul is writing about the work of Christ at the cross. He's in prison in Rome as he writes this, and in verse 14 he says, For he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one, two groups one, yet the Jews and the Gentiles. He is our peace, he has made peace, not only with God on our behalf, but actually with ourselves on our behalf. And how did he do this? He has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. Now you gotta understand, when Paul writes this, he's in prison in Rome. Do you know why he's in prison in Rome? He's in prison in Rome because in Acts chapter 21, he is accused of taking a Gentile into a part of the temple that Gentiles weren't allowed. He had taken, so the accusation went, Timothy, who was supposed to be a Gentile according to the religious leaders, he wasn't. He had taken Timothy past the wall that separated Jew from Gentile. That's why he's in prison. And I imagine as Paul is writing this, he's thinking about that moment and thinking, people of God, can't you see what God in Christ has done? He has actually destroyed this wall once and for all. Because when we are made right with God, we actually can be made right with one another. If there's ever a time when the church needs to reclaim this truth and this symbol, I believe it's in our nation right now. Rather than talking about Black Lives Matter in the Dallas Five, the church needs to recognize Jesus has destroyed the dividing wall of hostility. And if I have truly understood what Jesus did for me and what the Father has done for me in restoring that corrupted image, I will have no problem sorting out my differences with another person because their sin before my eyes is nothing like my sin before his. And so... So many problems happen in this world because we have forgotten that we are ministers of reconciliation. And we believe that a giant that needs to be slain in this world is this whole idea of spiritual emptiness, reconciliation. And in proclaiming the message of the cross to be reconciled to God, we are building a foundation for people to be reconciled to one to the other. The third giant we believe that needs to be slain is this whole idea. Oh, I forgot this part. Apart from the cross, there is, not, there is deep alienation between those from different backgrounds. That's the, me, the meaning of Ephesians chapter 2. The cross gives us hope. The third giant is, is this one, multifaceted illiteracy. Initially, this may, may escape us as a consequence of sin, but it, it's there. You see, because of the presence of sin, there isn't the knowledge available to people to make the right choices that lead them to experience the hope and life that Jesus offers. Two scriptures amongst many that I could give you. God came to the prophet Hosea and he said this, my people are destroyed, they're perishing. That's the word, they're dying through a lack of knowledge. Do you know that there are people dying in the world today because of a simple lack of knowledge about hygiene? People are dying, even since the part of the service, because they lack simple knowledge. The context there in Isaiah is essentially that they are dying because they do not have the knowledge of the Torah of the law. Many of us think that the, the Torah simply means the law, but it actually means the guiding principles of God for right living. People are dying in this world because they haven't got access to the simple issues of education. We see it again, Isaiah 5:13. Therefore, my people will go into exile for a lack of understanding, a lack of knowledge. Those of high rank will die of hunger, and the common people will be parched with thirst. It's not what God wants, but ignorance leads to death. But education, knowledge, leads to life. One of the implications of the cross is we can know God's will. God's will is in God's word revealed to us through the spirit of God to help us experience the life of God on earth right now. So one of the expressions of of sin in the world is that people live in ignorance when there is so much knowledge available to them. And God wants us to give that to them. So these are the first three of those global giants that we believe that as we do ministry both in Holland and at the ends of the earth, God wants us to slay. But there are another two, and Mike is going to carry on.
0: Pastor Craig. I'm going to go ahead and tackle these last two uh, together. Um, Poverty, injustice, and disease. They often work hand in hand, and it's um, two giants that are Uh, very close to to my calling, a calling, I believe, that started when when I was born. Um, When I was born, my mom wanted me to be Megan. I've got all kinds of issues that I'm dealing with because of that. Uh, But my father knew that I would be Micah, And so, when my parents named me Micah, my grandfather decided to choose a life verse for me, naturally, Micah 6.8. He has shown you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you, but to do justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. Before I talk more about that, I wanna know who gives the right to anyone to choose a verse for an innocent little child who can't weigh in whatsoever? But I mean, my grandfather loved me. Wouldn't he pick a verse like you know, it had to do with like wealth and prosperity? You know, many lands, many houses, many wives. Come on, Grandpa. <laughs> Kidding about the wives. One is plenty and one is wonderful. But he chose this verse for my life and in the context of the ministry where where God broke me was Southern Africa, a place that is absolutely riddled with disease. And poverty and injustice. And people often often ask, "Why, you know, Southern Africa isn't that, you know, kind of a Christianized region?" And it it is, but I usually respond in saying that. Did you know that 71% of the world's cases of HIV and AIDS are in Southern Africa? And so it forces you to ask the question: What kind of Christianity is there to allow that to continue? It's very common for someone who is infected with HIV or contracts HIV to seek a cure. They'll go to the clinic or the hospital. If that doesn't work, they'll go to the church. If the church doesn't work, they'll visit the witch doctor. The witch doctor will invite them in all kinds of animistic practices, animal sacrifices, even human sacrifices. If that doesn't work, they'll sell them the cure. And you wouldn't believe the depth of lies surrounding a cure for HIV and AIDS. It could be something as simple as honey, lemon juice, and ginger root serum. Drink it, it'll cure you. All the way to having sex with a virgin, being a cure for HIV. I have heard horror stories of elderly men abusing children, even babies, believing it would cure them of HIV, only perpetuating the problem. Because of HIV, there are over 17 million orphaned children in Southern Africa alone. And orphans are an ocean of supply for all kinds of injustices. Many orphans find themselves to be head of households at the age of 11, 12, 13. I've met a head of household boy who was nine years old, trying to take care of his siblings trying to work trying to go to school and many times people will approach these children in their vulnerability and offer them something an opportunity school a job go to another country and they end up being forced into exploitation in its various forms in human trafficking it's awful and i don't know how you feel when you hear these realities. I remember talking to a woman a couple years ago, a young lady, who actually chose that life of her own volition, and I asked her, I said, aren't you afraid of contracting HIV? And she goes, AIDS will kill me in years, hunger will kill me in weeks, and so I take the risk so I can eat every day. What do you feel when you hear realities like this? If you're like me, Justice burns in your heart. That feeling of this is not right, this is not good, this is not the way things should be. Someone should do something about it. Some time ago my wife bought me a a necklace and it has a little pendant, I wear it every day and one side it says Zadaka and the other side says Mishpat, righteousness and justice. It's also something that Pastor Brad referenced last October. And it fits nicely, this idea fits nicely with my life verse of justice and mercy and humility. I'm enthralled by the relationship with these words. Where there is righteousness, there is justice. The inverse is true as well. Where there is unrighteousness, there is injustice. These words are inextricably linked. And if we go back to the root of lost and impoverished people being spiritual and the nature being relational, we begin to see how the unrighteousness of one can lead to the injustice of many. Predatory lending practices on Wall Street lead to poor people losing their homes. Broken school systems are often the result of corrupt leadership, these Words are inextricably linked, and it's going to take us embracing this idea that God's righteousness will bring justice to the world. I wanna tell a story that hits close to home Uh, for me. It was just a year ago, uh, not my home, but where we work in Zambia. I met a young girl this morning, I'm gonna call her Grace. And uh, she was born in South Africa and her parents separated when she was young, so she lived with her grandparents until her aunt took her to Zambia from South Africa to live with her uncle and her cousin. And every day when her aunt would go to work, her uncle would molest her. This happened from the age of six years old to the age of eight. This led her to believe that that's all she's good for. That she's just an object. And so she continued that lifestyle with many, many other men for a long time. In the ninth grade she became pregnant and had a little baby girl, but had no support no family, no home to help her raise this child. And so she became desperate and she started sleeping with men for money to simply care for her child and in the process contracted hepatitis. She even told me that often she would have to work and leave her child at home and one day she came home only to find out that her Two year old baby girl had been abused while she was gone. I hear stories like this all the time. And when she tells me this story, justice burns in my heart. I want to show her what it's like to have a good father and a healthy family and opportunities like I did. But at the same time, I wanna rectify her situation. I would have loved to prevent all of that in her life, but I also wanna rectify her situation. I wanna make it right, and I want justice for those guys who treated her like an object. Justice burns. I asked Grace if she had forgiven all of those men, and she said, yes, it is for my freedom that I forgive. And that's the piece of my life verse that I couldn't accept, that ultimately justice came through mercy and forgiveness and sacrifice. Grace is doing well. She's being empowered with a skill. She's in school, her baby's well cared for, and miraculously she was healed of hepatitis. It's unbelievable. And it shows me what can happen when we're brave enough to enter into the disease and the poverty of another person. When we enter justice into that situation, their true image can be recovered in their vocation as co-creators. Grace wants to be a lawyer when she grows up, but she also realizes she's no longer an object, she's a child of God, and that she wants to help other girls who are in the same situation that she was in. Ladies and gentlemen, that's identity and that's calling. Amen? If you think that that poverty and injustice is just in far off lands, people at home suffer from all kinds of disease, mental illness, addiction, depression, oppression. It's one of the reasons that we have deliverance ministry and are starting to Celebrate Recovery. The State Department says that in any given moment, 2,700 minors are for sale, largely online in West Michigan. Ladies and gentlemen, disease, poverty, and injustice are here at home. And without the comprehensive work of Christ on the cross, there would be no hope whatsoever. And Pastor Craig's going to speak to that.
1: These are all, these giants are all expressions of the controlling power of sin. But the good news is that when God sent his son into the world, he envisaged a world where the controlling power of sin would be broken once and for all, that it would no longer have the hold on this world that it once did, and that through the sacrificial work of Christ on the cross, every person would receive the opportunity to step into a relationship with God that would give them the power they need to break free of the controlling power of sin and all of its consequences. This is what theologians call the comprehensive nature of the cross. That there's far more to the message of the cross and to the, the Christian gospel, the good news about Jesus, than simply offering someone a free pass into heaven when they die. But sadly, in the Western church over the last two or three decades, that's what the gospel has been rendered to. That's what it's been about. I remember as a teenager going to church twice a day. Many of you will remember those days, right? You go once in the morning, you go once in the evening. In Wales, you would go in the morning if you were a believer, if you were a follower of Jesus. And so we would go in the morning. There would be communion. There would be these prayers from the, I'm just going to say this as it is, as I, as I experienced it, from the older folks that would seem to go on and on and on and on. Then we'd have communion. Somebody would share a message for 15 minutes and we'd go home. And then we come back at 6 o'clock on a Sunday evening, and this would be the gospel service. This would be the service where we were supposed to invite people to come to church who didn't know Jesus. They'd hear the gospel, and then they would respond to it. And so every week we would go there. Every single week, and there would be the same message, and of course there is only one message given multiple different ways, and and the end would go something like this. I want you, the preacher would say, to just bend, uh, bow your heads, and close your eyes, and then he would go through this prayer, and he would say, if you want to give your heart to Jesus tonight, this is what I want you to do. I want you to lift up your head and look at me. And, of course, nobody was supposed to look, and sometimes as a teenager, you, you, you know, you kind of would. And, and then we would, we would do that, and then it would go on, and on, and on, and it was pretty clear that no one lifted their head up. And then he would say something like, you know, if you don't surrender your life to Jesus tonight, you may go out of here and be run over by a bus. You know, nobody responded to Jesus, but I noted that everybody was really careful when they crossed the road. <laughs> it, So I remember growing up just listening to the message of the gospel thinking all it addressed was the issue of my relationship with God, and if I actually prayed this prayer of faith, gave my life to Jesus Christ, then I would be right with God, and I would have this free pass into heaven when I die. Friends, the gospel is so much more than that. Look at these words of Paul in Colossians 1, 15 through 20. We talk, theologians will talk about the comprehensive nature of the cross. We've talked about these global giants that we believe Jesus Christ entered into this world to render them powerless. And you see this in passages like this. The Son, Jesus, second person of the Trinity, is the image of the invisible God. That word image there is the word icon in Greek. The way I picture this in this computer age is, ultimately, you know, whether you're a PC or, you know, you use a Mac, you have this icon that's actually on your kind of homepage, and your desktop, and when you click on that icon, what happens? It opens up a window into a far bigger world. That's what the icon means there. He is the image that when you look at Jesus, when you truly comprehend who He is, you are taken into another reality where you perceive that He actually reveals the person, and the power of God to you. That's the meaning of the word here. He's the image of the invisible God, that when you look at him, you see the unseen. He's the firstborn over all creation. Firstborn there doesn't mean literally the firstborn. That would make him a created being. It means supremacy, priority. He takes priority over all other things. And then Paul will tell us why that's the case. For in him, all things were created. Not some things, not a few things, all things. Things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. All things. So when Micah referred to the triunity of God, understanding our responsibility in the world by recognizing that we are image bearers, he said the Father's plan was to, uh, the, the plan of creation originated with the Father. The Father originates, and then Micah said, but the Son, executes, the body, in a sense, actually manifested this. That's what's going on here. The role of the son was to execute the will of the father. That wasn't the case simply when he lived his life on earth, it was also in his pre-existent state. To all things he created. Verse 17, he is before all things. And in him all things hold together. And this is where it gets good. And he is the head of the body, the church. So now all of a sudden the church, It's brought into what God is doing in the world, what God established even before the world was. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything, he might have the supremacy. In everything. Again, not some things, not a few things, in everything. And why? Why? Look at this, for God was pleased to have his fullness dwell in him. That word dwelling him is the word dwell, is the word plurammo. That basically means permanency. The father was pleased to have his identity, his very presence permanently be there in the son. And through him, and this is why, through him to reconcile, there's that word again, reconcile to himself all things. On the cross, what did Christ reconcile? Thank God he reconciled you and me to the Father, but he reconciled all things to himself. And in case we don't get the point, Paul says, whether things on earth or things in heaven, and how by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Friends, if we reduce the good news of the gospel simply to the idea that you and I have a free ticket to heaven when we die, then we have missed out on the vast majority of the implications of the gospel and shame on us for doing that. The cross is the comprehensive solution to the problems of this world. We cannot deal with abject poverty, of disease, of injustice, of illiteracy, of self-serving leadership without pointing to the cross because all these things are reconciled to God through Christ. But here's the point. All of this begins when we are reconciled to God. That's the starting point. Last year we rejoiced that over 530 people were reconciled to God through Christ. We rejoice in that. We rejoice that just this week on Monday evening, the Spirit of God moved through our young adult ministry, and there were 10 people who dealt with their relationship with God. Many prodigals came home, and what you're about to see right now is a video where they reconcile, that it, they realize that it's not enough simply to be reconciled, to be made right with God, that there is something outward that needs to happen. There, are, there is a movement that needs to be made. And... and Baptism symbolizes that. So uh, James, as he was there, he just shared a part of the gospel, invited people to get right with God. Ten people did. And then there was this spontaneous baptism that happened in the pond. And this is what happened. Have a look at this. You know, we fail these young people if we just leave it there. We fail them, because the gospel is about so much more than simply these folks being made right with God. They are image bearers of God. That means they have been endowed with authority that they express vulnerably to go into the world and to restore that which was broken. I rejoice that a number of those uh, were prodigals. Their parents, some of you in this room, have been praying for a long time for your children to come home. And this is just the beginning, they're home. But I rejoice even more that a number of those people are actually probably just getting off a plane on the other side of the world, going to the very places the micro has been sharing the stories with you about today. Their world is about to be rocked. Because they've been taken out of their context, as comfortable as it may seem, and they're going to be exposed to many of these giants at their worst. And God is going to open their eyes, and then they're going to realize it's exactly the same back home. All mission is local. God is going to call me to restore this broken image even in Holland. I rejoice that that's the kind of church that we are. And my prayer is that this ministry of slaying giants will become stronger and stronger and stronger. But friends, it begins in our own hearts as we recognize that there may well be aspects, manifestations of, of some of these controlling tendencies of sin in our own lives. I, I wonder how many of you are struggling with one of these giants. I wonder whether some of you have accepted forgiveness from God yourself and yet you're struggling to be reconciled to a brother or sister. That's the controlling power of sin. That's a giant that God says in Christ needs to be slain. I wonder how many of you here are battling with mental illness. You find yourself thinking that you're a second class citizen. Just realize that through Christ this can be slain. God wants to do a work in us. And so Micah and I have invited the team to come back to sing a song that's familiar to you. It's an older song, nothing new with it. It's simply called Awakening. In my heart, Lord, in my life, Lord, Awakening. And I pray that as you listen to this song and as maybe the Spirit brings one aspect of this message back into your own heart, that you would recognize that God has saved you to send you. God has saved you and you now bear the image of God, and he is calling you, he is pleading with you. Do not dumb down this gospel to the point where all it is is about you and a ticket to heaven. But no, be committed to live life recognizing that all mission is local around you right now there are people who live with the broken distorted image of god and by getting us right with him by responding obediently to him today we put ourselves in the perfect position to have fellowship restored in anointing restored and the power of god to move so church, pray with me as we go into the song. And I pray that as they sing this, that you would just sense God doing a work in your heart and maybe restoring a part of the image that is fractured in your own heart. Pray with me. Father, we thank you so much for the message of the cross that in Christ and through Christ and because of Christ, all things have been reconciled to you. All things not some things, but all things, including that thing that we may struggle with. So God, in this moment, we pray as the words of the song say that you would awaken us in our hearts, Lord, in our life, Lord, in our church, Lord, in our town, Lord, awakening. Revive your people, and may we live as the image bearers that we are. In Jesus' name, amen.